Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. As you're turning over there, just two days ago in nearby Shenandoah Heights, there was an infant on the third floor of a house that caught on fire. Heroically, an officer from that town rushed into the house all the way to the top and found that infant and brought the infant to safety out the front door of the house. As the fire department was pulling up, that officer was bringing the child out of the house. Good news. Good news that a child's life was saved. But some bad news before the good news. Can you imagine for just a moment being the parents of that child and realizing that there was a fire in your house and that your infant was on the third floor and that you were not able to get there to get your child? Could you imagine as a parent receiving that kind of bad news? That would be heavy, wouldn't it? You see, before good news is really good, there has to be some bad news. Certainly at this time of Christmas, we celebrate the good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus came to save sinners and to die on the cross But I want to remind you this morning that before the good news of Christmas ever makes any sense to us at all, there has to be some bad news that we understand. And I'd like to speak to you for just the next few moments about the bad news of Christmas. I know it's not very rejoicing and happy and festive for this time of year, but the truth is that if you comprehend this bad news, it will make the good news of Christmas seem all the better in your life. You see, for many people, Christmas is often seen as a time of joy and love. They experience family and togetherness and all of the warm feelings of the season. And I realize that some of you are sitting here saying, Pastor, that's not at all what Christmas means to me. I get it. Because Christmas isn't good feelings and happy times for everybody. In fact, there's probably some who are here this morning with some heaviness, some pain, and some difficulty. And sometimes it feels like the Christmas spirit is about dismissing those concerns and pretending like we live in a make-believe world for a day or two. But that's not at all the message of Christmas. You see, the good news of Christmas was delivered at the time of the worst possible news. It's the news that man needs a Savior. I want you to direct your attention, if you would, to verse number 18. We'll read just a few verses from Matthew chapter 1. We want to key in on verse 21, so pay special attention to verse 21 when we get there. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and 
not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Do you notice in verse 21 that Joseph was instructed about the name of this child that was to be born, and the name was very specific. He was to be called Jesus. And the reason is, he shall save his people from their sins. The very name of Jesus denotes the central message of Christ's incarnation. That is, the reason that God became flesh was that we as man desperately need a Savior. I want you to consider with me just a couple of thoughts this morning. I'll not keep you long, but I hope that you'll stay with me in the message and really think about the reason that we celebrate the birth of Christ at this season of the year. First of all, consider with me the demand for a Savior. You'll notice that the scripture says Jesus would come to save his people from their sins. Now the word save often gets used in a religious way and we tend to relegate it to that realm and think about it as a church word. But really the idea of being saved means to be rescued. It means to be in a place of peril or a place of danger that you cannot deliver yourself from and you desperately need someone to save you. If you think about what happened two days ago in Shenandoah Heights, that little infant could not remove itself from the house. That infant was in a hopeless and helpless condition and desperately needed someone who was stronger and more able and had compassion to act on its behalf to come to the third floor of that house and convey it outside. Amen. This is exactly the idea of what it means when the Bible says that Jesus would come to save or to rescue his people from their sins. There is a strong demand for a savior. Now, just for a moment, consider with me the history of man's sin. You look back over the history of mankind, and you can see, littered across the pages of history, all sorts of tragedy, all sorts of treachery, all sorts of, of debauchery and wickedness. And sometimes we look at the history of the world, and then we don't even have to think just about the history of the world. We look at the current condition of the world and people throw up their hands and they say, what in the world is going on? Well, what is going on is man's sin. Everything that you see, all the wars, all the fighting, all of the, uh, all of the crimes, all of the, all of the abuse, all of the sorrow, all of the sickness, it is all attributed to man's sin. 
Because man has chosen to rebel against a holy God and to do his own thing, to live his own way and be determined to to live according to his own plan, insisting that it will all work out, despite the fact that the world is literally burning all around us, we insist that our sin will be fine, that, that after all, we should be able to do exactly what we want to do, and that is exactly why the world is the way it is, because people are doing what they want to do. The history of the world is a sad history because the history of the world is the history of man's sin. I know today people tell us we're getting better and better, more and more advanced. I'm sorry, I looked at the news this morning. I disagree. I I don't feel that we're getting better and better. I, I feel actually that we're following the trajectory which the Bible told us would come, that evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. That actually men are going deeper and deeper into sin, and now as much or more than ever before, we desperately need a Savior. I was reading with my family the other day in Romans chapter 3. You could hold your place in Matthew 1 and turn back to Romans chapter 3 in our family devotions. We were reading this chapter, and I'll not read the whole chapter to you, but I want to point out a couple of familiar verses to you. Some some of you may have memorized these verses in the past and know them already, but in verse number 10, you'll notice that the Bible says this very plainly, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Farther down in verse number 23, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, I recognize that many who are here today and many who are in the world outside the walls of this building, if they were asked the question, are you a good person? They would say, of course I'm a good person. And the reason that we say that is because we're comparing ourselves to other people around us in society. But the indictment of the Bible, the condemnation of the Bible is that actually when we are measured against the standard of God's holiness and God's law, that all of us have sinned, that none of us is righteous. And the truth is, it's very uncomfortable to do. But if you took the law of God and you applied it to yourself and you examined your heart and you examined your life, you would find not once or twice or three times that you have sinned, but very likely you would find thousands upon thousands of times that you have willfully rebelled against the commandment of God and you have done your own thing. And the truth is that because of that, we can say with authority and with absolute assurance that every single person in this room this morning is a rebel and a sinner against God. We have a most desperate need. When the Bible speaks about people being lost in their sins and needing to be saved, it means that we are helplessly and hopelessly ensnared in sin, and we do not have the ability to save ourselves by our own righteousness. The Bible describes it this way in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 6, "...all we like sheep have gone astray." We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The truth is, given the choice, 
All of us would have done the exact same thing as Adam did in the garden. And in fact, all of us have done the exact same thing as Adam. You can be upset with Adam all you want, but you've done the exact same thing. You also, and I also, have sinned against God. Uh, We've been rebels against God. We've gone our own direction. This is why we needed a Savior. Now, if, if it was possible that one of us could have been more righteous than everyone else and perhaps have provided a way, a path, Uh, of good works or a path of, of somehow fixing our problem, then why would Jesus have needed to come? You see, I want you to understand this morning, there is a tremendous demand even today for a Savior. When I get out into the world and rub shoulders with people in our culture. I hear people's stories and talk to them about the, the burdens of their heart and the things that are going on in their life. I'm more and more aware of the fact that all around me there are people who have a great need of the Savior. Sadly, at this season of the year, people are celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ without realizing their own personal need of a Savior. Do you know this morning that it is quite impossible for you and I to save ourselves? Now, I'm as much of a, of a person who hates to ask for help as anybody else, probably more so. I never have liked asking for help. I could do it myself. I, I can figure it out. I, I can be sufficient. I, I, it's okay. It'll be fine. I don't, I don't need to ask anyone. That's a tendency that we have as human beings. Would you agree with me? It manifests itself early in our life. I think of my little boys sometimes trying to carry something heavy and they're about to fall over. Can I help you? No, I got it. Okay. All right. Don't hurt yourself. And I laugh because I can see myself in them. Now, that's one thing when it comes to carrying something heavy or doing a hard task. But when it comes to trying to save ourselves from our sin, so many people are desperately trying to save themselves. They're trying to rescue themselves. They're thinking somehow they can pull themselves out of the place of sin where they found themselves. And the truth is, you cannot. You cannot. Now, the Savior will be meaningless to you until you get to the place where you actually recognize that you have a need for a Savior. And we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. The demand for a Savior. But notice with me, second of all, the coming of the Savior. Go back to our text in Matthew chapter 1. The coming of the Savior. You see here in this passage, Joseph was being informed about the coming of the Savior and some of the circumstances of his coming. I want you to think for just a couple of minutes about the incredible circumstances surrounding the incarnation. First of all, it was a humble coming. We would think that the creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal son of God would have come with tremendous fanfare, that there would have been a parade. Perhaps he would be set upon the throne of the highest kingdom of the world. But this was not the case. When Jesus came into this earth, it was a humble coming. He was born to a virgin. That in and of itself, though it is miraculous, was a point of tremendous shame. For his entire earthly life, 
Jesus would be mocked because of the circumstances of his birth. The idea was, yeah, right, your mom was a virgin. No way. And they would mock him and make fun of him as if somehow the circumstances of his birth were shameful or wicked or against the law of God. It was a humble coming. It was a humble coming because of the fact that he was born to a virgin, also because he was born into a poor family. We know from the scriptures that Joseph and Mary, who cared for Jesus after he was born and as he, uh, became, as he grew as a boy and eventually into a man, that they were very poor according to the measures of this world. Later, Jesus would say about himself that he didn't even have a place to lay his head, that he did not have a home that belonged to him. Uh, he didn't have, uh, if we were to put it in our modern vernacular, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He was born in humble circumstances to a poor family. Now, again, we think if he's the creator of everything that is and he owns it all, wouldn't he have come exhibiting his tremendous wealth? But that is not how he came. He was born to a virgin. He was born into a poor family. He was born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough that belonged to the animals, wrapped up in swaddling clothes. Not exactly the ideal circumstances for a birth. Not exactly the place where any of you ladies would want to lay your newborn child. But these were the circumstances that Jesus was born into quite on purpose. Later, when Jesus would grow up as a boy, he would grow up in the town of Nazareth, which was of ill repute all through the land of Israel. Everybody regarded Nazareth as the worst possible place that you could come from. That's where Jesus was raised. That's where he lived out his childhood. In fact, that's why so many people had trouble seeing him as the Messiah, because they didn't realize he was born in Bethlehem and they thought he came from Nazareth. They couldn't imagine the Savior of the world coming from Nazareth. It was a humble coming. Now, why was it humble? Because I believe Jesus was identifying with us. Jesus was demonstrating his own humility. He came as a servant. He came to bear our sins. Not only was it a humble coming, but it was a human coming. The Bible tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You can find that in John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Imagine that thought that the God of heaven, the eternal one, took on the form of flesh so that he could dwell among people like you and me. So he could rub shoulders with sinners and mortal ones. He came as a human being because it was necessary for him to die as a man in our place. He took on flesh. Though he never committed sin, he experienced temptation just like you and I do. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Yet, 
without sin. This is the miraculous aspect of the incarnation. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus would become a man so that he could achieve our rescue. We needed to be rescued and he came. He came to rescue us. It's also a miraculous coming, and you can see this clearly in the Scriptures. Uh, An allusion is made to this here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. The Scripture says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying... And then in verse 23, he refers to a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy that was made 700 years before about the Incarnation. When you start to study and consider all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, when you start to comprehend the fact that the coming of Jesus into this world was not something that just happened in the middle of nowhere in some kind of a vacuum in human history. No, the truth is that this was predicted from the very beginning. From the very moment of man's sin, promises began being made. Right in Genesis chapter 3, Promises were made by God about the coming of one who would provide deliverance. Pictures were given all through the Old Testament demonstrating that there would come a Lamb of God which would take away the sin of the world. All of the sacrifices in the the worship system of the Hebrew people, all of these things are built around the fact or the idea that there is a need for a Savior and that a Savior is coming. His coming was miraculous. It was miraculous because it was predicted by Scripture and because Jesus fulfilled every detail of those prophecies in His coming. This is an absolute impossibility to take place by chance. In fact, people who have studied the person of Jesus and particularly the prophecies that He fulfilled in His coming, people who were skeptics of Jesus who came and examined the evidence, said, how can you not believe in Jesus? He was clearly a historical figure. He clearly fulfilled Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, there is something unique about Jesus that makes him stand out above all other men. His coming was announced by the angels. Can you imagine? There wasn't much fanfare surrounding the birth of Jesus, but some angels did appear to some shepherds out on the hills there of Judea and announced that the Savior was born. Those shepherds were the recipients of a glorious message as those angels declared that the Messiah had come to earth. It was a miraculous coming, and it needed to be a miraculous coming because this foreshadowed the miracle of our rescue. You see, the truth is, we are so lost that we could not be rescued by anything less than miraculous means. This is why Jesus had to come to be our Savior. And Jesus himself made the statement in his ministry, Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10, that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
You see, the very purpose for the incarnation, the, the purpose of the birth of Christ, of Him coming into this world, was so that He might find sinners and rescue them in the midst of their sin. Praise God for this, because truthfully, we are in such desperate need of a Savior that if He had not come, we would all be lost. There would be absolutely no hope. In fact, this morning, I can't stand before you and share with you a message of hope based on the progress of mankind. I can't point to the accomplishments of human beings and say, surely things will get better and better. The only thing that gives me hope is the coming of Jesus Christ into this world and what he accomplished. The only thing that gives me hope is that the same God who gave promises about that coming of the Messiah has made promises which assure us that we have hope beyond this life. This is the only thing that could give us hope. I told you that I wanted to speak to you about the bad news of Christmas. It is bad news that we need a Savior. The truth is, if you got a call today that your loved one was in a perilous position and needed to be rescued, you would not regard that as good news. You would regard it as terrible news. It would probably ruin your day and most likely would ruin your Christmas. It's not good news of a rescue until the bad news is felt and owned. Our lostness. This morning, our lostness ought to weigh heavy on us. The very fact that Jesus had to come signals that we needed a Savior. And it is bad news that we're in need of rescuing. But it's the best news that a Savior has, in fact, come. So there's a demand for a Savior, and there's the coming of the Savior But third of all, I want you to consider with me the response to the Savior. The response to the Savior. You can turn, if you will, to John chapter 1. I'll meet you over there in just a moment. John chapter 1. Jesus was prophesied. He came into this world. And you would think, well then that means that everyone is rescued, right? Not so fast. Because God in His wisdom has given every one of us the opportunity to respond to what Jesus has done. It's unbelievable in John chapter 1 to consider in verse number 11. Let's back up to verse number 10. This is talking about Jesus He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. That means they didn't even recognize him. They had no idea who he was, most of them. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Could you imagine if you went to your own house after services, and the front door was locked, and you knocked on the door, and somebody came and said, what do you want? And you said, I'd like to come in to my house. No. 
We're not letting you in. Stay out. You'd probably be a little upset, wouldn't you? You'd probably be trying to figure out what was going on. Hold on, this is my house. What, who are you? Why won't you let me in? Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. The people that he had made, the people that he had created, turned their back coldly on him and walked away. They wanted nothing to do with him. You say, boy, shame on them. I can't believe anyone would do such a thing. Oh, people are doing the exact same thing today. They're treating Jesus in exactly the same way. Not receiving him. Not welcoming him. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, there's a responsibility that each one of us has to receive what Jesus has done in our place. To receive means to take it as your own. It means to possess it. It means that when it's handed to you, you actually take it. It's like many of us will open presents tomorrow on Christmas Day. What would it be like if you handed a gift to someone and they said, I don't want it? You would probably have a hard time with that, wouldn't you? What if that gift was something that you purchased at great cost? And they coldly pushed it away and said, I want nothing to do with it. Keep your gift. There is nothing, no gift, that was ever more costly than the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet many people coldly push him away. They refuse Jesus Christ. They want nothing to do with him. But if you will receive him today, if you will humble yourself to receive him, God will be gracious to give you power to become one of his sons to be adopted into the family of God, to experience the spiritual birth, to be born again by the power of the Spirit of God. You see, there's a response that is required. And it's a response that comes before each one of us when we comprehend who Jesus is and what He came for and what our need is. We are going to have to respond to either receive Him or reject Him. In fact, this morning, this very morning, you will make a decision about whether you will receive or reject Jesus Christ. The truth is, each one of us will be responsible for that choice when we stand before God. God is not asking a lot of us, really. He's just asking us to receive the precious gift that He's given to us in the form of Jesus Christ. He's asking us to obey the gospel, to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. You say, why would anyone reject Jesus? Why would they not receive Jesus? Well, it comes back to the premise of the message. Most people don't receive Jesus because they don't really think that they need a Savior. They don't really see their own personal need. Hey, listen, if Jesus came to die for bad people, I'm glad he did because there's lots of bad people, but I'm not one of them. There's the problem right there. You don't need a Savior because you believe that you are your own Savior. You believe that you can work it out on your own. You believe that 
Other people might need a rescuer, but not you. Other people might be in need of mercy and grace, but not you. After all, what does God have against you because you've been such a good person? You see, the truth is you have regarded yourself as your own Savior and in doing so have rejected the precious gift of God which has been given to you. Did you ever fly on an airplane, a commercial airline? At the very beginning of the flight, you all know what happens. Now, give your attention to our flight attendants as they speak about the emergency procedures on this aircraft. Have you seen the demonstration? You paid attention to it? Do you check where the life jacket is under your seat? I mean, they tell you it's under your seat, right? Do you reach under just to make sure it's there? I don't. Do you pay close attention to how that mask is going to come down and what you're supposed to do with it? I don't. Do you take special note to count the number of rows between you and the exit just in case the plane crashes and you need to go out on the slide? I don't. Do you know why? Because I'm figuring this plane's not going to crash. Truthfully, I'm figuring if this plane crashes, I'm not going to need a life jacket. (laughs) We just flew to Australia across the Pacific and they went through all that and I thought, what good is a life jacket going to do me? I don't know. I'm going to be out there and the middle of the ocean, they're never going to find us. If you even survive the impact. I mean, isn't that what you think? Truthfully, you get on, you think, if, if I thought that I was going to need those things, I wouldn't get on the plane. <laughs> really. A few years ago, we were visiting a nearby national site. And they were talking... Before we left on the boat to go to the place where we were headed, they were talking about the procedures for what would happen if the boat got into trouble. And I made the mistake of looking around and trying to figure out how many life vests there were and where they were at and how in the world you would get to them. And I thought, if this boat ever started to go down, this would be absolute chaos. Now... I also noted that during that time of announcement, there was nobody that was paying attention. Nobody. It would be akin to me having a pile of life jackets up here on the platform and saying, I've got some life jackets. Would anyone like one? And you'd look at me and think, Pastor, you're nuts. What would we need a life jacket for? Are you expecting a lot of rain today? I mean, what's it? What are you trying to give me a life jacket for? I don't need a life jacket. Maybe an umbrella, but not a life jacket. Don't you see that I'm fine? Now listen to me. That's exactly what happens when the gospel is preached with many people in their mind. They're saying, what do I need a Savior for? I'm fine. No, friend. You're not fine. You're not fine. If you could have saved yourself, why would Jesus have come? Why would he 
have come from heaven to earth to die on a cross and suffer rejection of God the Father because of your sins and mine if there was some other way of salvation. People desperately cling to some other way of salvation, but the truth is there is no other way than Jesus Christ. Now, I wanted to speak to you about the bad news of Christmas this morning because truthfully, before it will ever be good news to you, you have to bear the weight of the guilt of your sin. You have to understand how desperately you need a Savior. You have to feel for at least a moment the heaviness of the cost of your rebellion against God and the condemnation, the just condemnation of God against your sin. If for even a moment you can feel that weight, if you can appreciate the fact that you are lost and hopeless and helpless, then in that moment, the incarnation of Christ, His later death, burial, and resurrection, it all becomes incredible news. You know, that family whose infant was rescued from the top floor of their house, I doubt if they'll ever forget what happened. I, I imagine that they have a new respect for police officers and emergency workers. I would, I would venture to say that from this time on, they are going to regard people who risk their life to rescue others in a totally different way. Why? Because they have received a gift. And that gift has touched them deeply. For many of us who are here today, we have received the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. To us, we have felt the bad news and we have received the good news. And today we are inexplicably joyful about the coming of Jesus Christ because it means everything to us. It's so befuddling to me to see how people respond to the incarnation of Christ. Like, oh, who cares? Come on, let's talk about Santa and elves and stuff. I want to say the Savior has come to the world. That's what really matters. And you say, frankly, Pastor, I don't get it. I understand. I understand. But if you ever need a Savior, if you ever appreciate the fact that you are hopelessly and helplessly lost in sin, and it dawns upon you that God became flesh to become the sin bearer and to rescue you from your own brokenness and rebellion against God, then in that moment you might say, praise God, what good news. And you'll never be the same. This morning, if there's a message I could share with you to make Christmas meaningful, it's the bad news of Christmas. And if for just a few moments I could help you to feel the weight of your sin, then you might be able to experience something about the good news of Christmas and realize how good God has been.